Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, depending on where you're listening. Welcome back to AI and the Future of Work. Thanks again for making this one of the most downloaded podcasts about the future of work. If you enjoy what we do, please like, comment, and share in your favorite podcast app. And we'll keep sharing amazing conversations like the one we have for today. I'm your host, Dan Turchin, CEO of PeopleRain, the AI platform for IT and HR employee service. I'm also an investor in and advisor to more than 30 AI-first companies and a firm believer in the power of technology to make humans better. If you're passionate about changing the world with AI, or maybe just looking for your next adventure, let's talk. We learn from AI thought leaders weekly on this show. And of course, the added bonus is you get one AI fun fact each week. Today's fun fact, or maybe slightly dystopian fact, or at least one worth uh, worth considering, is that recently, more than 25,000 signatories, including Elon Musk, Steve Wozniak, and Tristan Harris of the Center for Humane Technology, signed an open letter that was posted online a few weeks back. We're taping this in April of 2023. And it calls on all la- all AI labs to immediately pause for at least six months the training of AI systems more powerful than chat GPT-4. The group expresses its concern this way. Contemporary AI systems are now becoming human competitive at general tasks, and we must ask ourselves, should we let machines flood our information channels with propaganda and untruth? Should we automate away all the jobs, including the fulfilling ones? The letter is clearly penned by capitalists who fear competition from open AI and I'll say somewhat cynically, are using fear-mongering to buy time while they catch up. My perspective, as you know from listening to this podcast, is that uh, slowing the pace of innovation has never been the answer. It didn't work in the Enlightenment period with the printing press or the Industrial Revolution with steam engines, and it's not going to work now. The answer is more thoughtful conversations about what it means to exercise AI responsibly. More education and less rhetoric will ultimately lead to more safe innovation faster that will ultimately benefit humans. As always, I will share the link to the full article in today's show notes, but uh, now shifting to this week's important conversation. Doctors are overworked and uh, are notorious for taking poor notes. Patients feel like the quality of care is compromised when doctors are either distracted by compliance tasks and they're unable to focus on the patient experience. What if AI could turn health conversations into actionable recommendations to free up doctors to be more present and ultimately deliver better care? Well, today's guest is a cardiologist, an academic, and uh, and the CEO of an amazing company. It's changing how doctors help patients. Dr. Shiv Rao started a bridge in 2018 to solve one of the biggest problems in healthcare. He has since raised $27 million, most recently in a $12.5 million Series A extension last August from leading investors, including Bessemer, Union Square, Whittington Ventures, and legendary AI pioneer, Yoshua Bengio. Without further ado, Shiv, it is my pleasure to welcome you to the podcast. Let's get started by having you share a little bit more about your background and how you got into this space. Awesome. Thanks, Dan. It's awesome to be here. Really excited. In terms of a little bit about my background, so we we started this company in 2018. Um, just prior to that, I was a corporate VC for a really large healthcare system, one of the largest in the country. 
And I got to violate Peter's principle there like five times in five years and ended up leading their provider facing portfolio of tech investments into startups and also into R&D labs. So I led the portfolio of solutions that were aimed at helping doctors, nurses and other healthcare professionals working in hospitals, but also in clinics and invested in startups. But also, I'm really proud of the capital that we put into Carnegie Mellon. And we, sh- we started a machine learning and health program there. And that's where a lot of the founding DNA for a bridge actually comes from. A lifetime ago, I went to Carnegie Mellon as well, but in the middle became a practicing cardiologist. So at this time, you know, I'm, I'm fully, of course, you know, fully focused on a bridge. But in the context of a bridge, I'll still see three to four patients every month, mostly just to dog food our technology, bring those insights back to the team so that we can build Measure Learn faster. Describe a typical interaction between a patient and a doctor using a bridge. Yeah, absolutely. So I can kind of give you maybe like the before a bridge and after a bridge, and um, we can kind of compare and contrast a little bit. So before a bridge, let's think back to me practicing in a regular clinic five or six years ago. I'd walk into clinic, I'd have a, a almost like a bulletin board to kind of look at for all my patients for the day. I'd get a piece of paper with my first patient, um, their name and sort of the chief reason that they're coming in to see me. And I'd sometimes go into the medical record and do what I call, and a lot of us call a chart biopsy, where I would quickly sort of get a sense of who is this person before I walk in the room. That in and of itself could take 30 minutes, an hour. Then I walk into the room and I start to have a conversation. I introduce myself and we get straight into the reason that they're seeing me. We have uh, a free-flowing conversation. You know, I live in Pittsburgh, so the first 10 minutes of any conversation might be about the Pittsburgh Steelers. You know, we might be talking about the snow outside. And that's how medical conversations go. They can be very meandering. They can be very circuitous. You can talk about any number of things. And sometimes there's so much signal in the social kind of chit-chat as well. But we have that free-flowing conversation. And over the course of that conversation, oftentimes there's next steps that are interspersed, that are that are sprinkled in. For example, me prescribing a medication or recommending a change in diet. But then at the end, um, I leave the patient, they check out um, in the clinic, and I go on to usually see my next patient. And the reason why is because while I was in the room, I had a piece of paper in front of me and I was just taking chicken scratch. I was trying to keep up with the conversation because I w- didn't want to be distracted. I wanted to be as present as possible with my patient. There are some people that will just turn their backs to their patient the whole time and type while they're talking to the patient and basically try to get all of their paperwork done in the room or as much of it as possible. But I'm not one of those people. And so at the end of the day, I've got a lot of pieces of paper, you know, with a lot of, you know, chicken scratch, some of which that, you know, isn't even legible to me anymore. And sometimes I'll put a descriptor like tall guy in the Mets hat. And that's all that I'm hoping will sort of trigger my memory to the, the depth, you know, the color of the conversation, the richness that you know, I'll have to subsequently sort of document because it can be so valuable for all the different workflows that are downstream of this note. So um, needless to say, it leads to a very lossy note. Um, In addition to it being a lossy note, which has ramifications, not just on the patient first and foremost, but also on the care team and also on billing and revenue cycle oriented workflows, it's a lot of cognitive overhead for me. Um, it's a lot of burden for me to have to write those notes at night. We call that pajama time, where after I've put the bed, kids to bed, after I've eaten dinner, um, I'm sitting down with a computer and I'm going through all my pieces of paper and I'm trying to recollect things and um, write my notes. So it's a, it's a very 
burdensome process. If you kind of surveyed 10 clinicians or 100 clinicians, I would bet that 90% of them would say that this is the biggest pain point in their days. It's documentation. So what what that means, though, is is it it in what the ramifications are here is that it leads to burnout. It leads to doctors and nurses leaving the profession. On the other side of the pandemic, what we're seeing is the the level of burnout in healthcare is is just on a next level. Like we've never seen anything like this. There's some national studies recently that suggested that more than fifty percent of providers are experiencing burnout related symptoms. Um, but I think that's really a gross underestimate um, in actuality. There was a recent study in the Journal of General Internal Medicine that suggested that doctors actually require a 27-hour workday to get all of that documentation and clerical work done. So it's just not reasonable. But when you think about the system from a meta perspective, it sort of start to it starts to make sense why so much pressure is building up here on those clinicians, those doctors and nurses. On one end, we have a, a pie that isn't getting larger in terms of the amount of, of revenues that can be generated in healthcare delivery. Um, on the other side, um, we have you know, demand that's going up, especially on the other side of the pandemic. More and more people are going back to seeing their clinicians regularly and, and catching up with care that might be overdue. But the supply side of doctors and nurses is actually dwindling, just like the pie is dwindling. And that means that large systems have a choice to make. Well, how are we going to somehow find a way to either hire back all the clinicians and, and build a more robust workforce to be able to serve the demand? How are we, can we charge more? You can't. Um, can we aggregate, buy more hospitals to kind of get more leveraging, like, you know, leverage in, 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 in pricing discussions? Very, very difficult, if not impossible. So what are they left with? They're left with thinking about technology. And that's where a bridge comes in, because when a bridge is a part of the conversation, we use generative AI to actually create notes and structured data for all the different customers of the note that I, as a doctor, have to write, because it's not just other doctors I'm writing for. I'm writing for my patient because they're going to get access to that note via the portal. And I'm writing for all of the revenue cycle oriented workflows that are downstream of the note as well. So. As you and I know, generative AI is such a perfect power tool for that sort of style transfer, if you will, of being able to kind of be a part of the conversation and in one fell swoop, create all the different artifacts, whether unstructured or structured, and really allow those clinicians to do what they went to medical and nursing school to do, which is focus on their patient in front of them, first and foremost. So Shiv, as a cynical patient, I've become convinced that the days of doctors having any bedside manner are gone. And mm -hmm. I would almost rather a fully automated experience, except when I have to go under the knife. And even then, you know, I largely trust robots to perform surgery. I'm cynical based on my experience. And what you're saying is that we can bring back bedside manner by freeing up doctors to be present in a session with a patient. Is the pendulum, can it ever swing back in a direction where patients have a trusted relationship with the doctor? Or are we going to see more automation, more telemedicine? It seems to be a trend, but, but I'm hoping that a bridge wins. I think that those two, that the, it, those two can happen at the same time. I actually think that AI actually is making in some cases, like with a bridge, healthcare feel more human again. 
because what it's doing is it's pushing value up the stack where what really matters is that bedside manner. It, it, what matters is conversation, being as complete, as thorough as possible, being present with your patient, really helping them totally grok and understand um, and, and make decisions together, you know, do shared decision making such that they can be the healthiest versions of themselves. I think AI can actually unlock more of those quote unquote value-based revenue models where um, payment actually accrues to those who actually deliver the best possible experience in healthcare um, as well as outcome. So I, I think that they're, they're, they're not um, necessarily, you know, in, um, in, in conflict with each other. I think that AI can actually make healthcare what it used to feel like or what we idealistically always wanted it, wanted it to be like. But I relate to what you're saying, like a quick story. When we started the company in March of 2018, I saw a patient in my clinic, and this was just as we were starting the company, and she gave me so much conviction. This was absolutely the right thing and the, the, the most important thing I could dedicate myself to. Um, she had a 10-year history of breast cancer, and she had come in for preoperative cardiac evaluation. So that's where you see a cardiologist just for a rubber stamp on, ability, uh, on, on, on being able to have a certain chemotherapy or a certain surgery. And she was about to start a new chemotherapy. We had a conversation and I could tell throughout she was really, really anxious and nervous, like crawling out of her skin, kind of uncomfortable. And, and I, I couldn't tell why. So I asked her towards the end, you know, I can tell you're uncomfortable. Was, was it something I said, something I did? And she told me that for the last 10 years at that time, her husband had come to every single visit with a doctor except this one. He just couldn't make it. And I asked him, I asked her, well, what does he do that's not obvious? And she told me he sits in the corner, he's quiet, he just takes notes. And she's an English professor, incredibly eloquent. She told me that him taking notes meant that she could feel present, be in the moment with her clinician, knowing full well that even though she would probably forget, and there's data to suggest people forget up to 80% of what they've heard from doctors and nurses, it's just how we're wired, that she could go home later and unpack those notes, rewrite them in words they understood, and then go to the next clinician and feel like the main characters of their story as opposed to someone looking in from the outside. And so we're, the needle we're threading here is that when a bridge is a part of the conversation, we can create that value for the clinician first here. We can really focus on helping unburden them so that they can focus fully on their patient have the best bedside manner, converse knowing that they don't need to be distracted with all the clerical work because we've taken that off the table. But then what we can also do is take something else off the table for them, which is an extension of their best intention to be there for their patient, even when they're not in front of them. They don't need to sort of leave their patient and worry, did she remember what I just said? Did she remember the metaphor um, I gave her about the heart being like a house and, and how this chemotherapy is going to be something that could affect the pump? You know, they don't need to worry about all those things because when we're a part of the conversation, we can create, in addition to the clinical useful and billable note, we can create a summary for the patient. And that summary is sort of souped up. It's, 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 it's got the machine learning steroids in it. It can nudge her. her the patient in a week or in two weeks, reminding them, unpacking big words at a fourth grade reading level, helping really translate all the jargon and all the process. And it can over time be a, a kind of care manager that sort of guides her through all of her next steps. So uh, I, I think in this world that I'm describing, I think it's a bit of both what you said. It, there is AI here that's clearly doing a lot of heavy lifting for, for everyone involved, but it's also, I think, creating a better human interaction at the same time. This could also pose kind of an existential threat in the medical community. How do you get doctors who've spent 
12 plus years going through medical training to A, trust AI to summarize these important conversations, and then B, that the logical extension of this AI incursion, you know, into this private, you know, patient doctor conversation space doesn't ultimately edge out the need for a human doctor. Well, I think it's time horizons here that we're talking about. And I think in any nearish term time horizon, AI being able to replace doctors is is something that I don't believe is going to happen anytime too soon. I think that it will assist them. Absolutely. It will augment them. And that I also think it's going to automate a whole bunch of workflows like the ones that a bridge focuses on. But AI being able to sort of deal with that patient with a 10-year history of breast cancer and guide her towards the right chemotherapy and then sort of be there for her, supporting her, not just medically, but in all the ways that the best clinicians do as she navigates that potential lifelong journey with cancer is not something that I think a machine is going to be able to replace anytime soon. And I think if you were to survey a whole bunch of clinicians, or I should say consumers out there, I should say patients, if we were to talk to a whole bunch of people, and if we were to ask them, hey, like, would you want to get on a plane that's autopilot with AI, or that also includes an, a pilot um, who's using autopilot, everyone's going to prefer the latter, I think. They're going to want that human backstop, that expert who can leverage AI. And so I think the refrain that, that, uh, most many people are increasingly, you know, embracing is that doctors who use AI are going to replace doctors who don't, and I think that's what that's what we're going to see at least in any you know time horizon um, in the near term. hundred percent, I agree about augmenting the capabilities of the of the human doctor. Anyone who understands how AI works knows that it's pattern matching at scale. So if you remove the human who is able to exercise judgment and rational thinking and use a career's worth of, you know, accurate patterns, that is, is certainly something that I'd want to trust my health to more than AI that has been trained on some good patterns and some bad bad patterns. Yeah, totally. And, and I think that in this world, you're only as good as your last prior. You know, I'm thinking about BioGPT. So when that came out, someone queried it and asked it if, a, a certain medication that that some were using for COVID that was, you know, off label and is actually aimed at worms um, was a good drug for COVID, and it said yes, and it sort of like described how and why it could be used, and and clearly like the science would say that that is absolutely not the case. This is not a good drug, but you know, this large language model had seen it in the data somewhere. And so it was spitting back what it had seen. And that's the sort of thing that I think gives should give everyone pause on sort of overestimating its capabilities right now. So when I hear about AI listening in on conversations, um, it's hard not to think about um, the implications of AI hearing things that it shouldn't hear and potentially misinterpreting things that it does hear. Um, how do you get patients comfortable with the potential implications of AI, presumably at a bridge, it's not selectively listening. It hears everything. And what about the, how might it change the nature of the patient doctor or the openness of the conversation, knowing that 
any it's all being recorded and potentially used to 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 diagnose and make recommendations yeah so our approach is not to bolt microphones to a wall and surveil the room and there are large companies that that actually think about that and actually have done that in hospitals believe it or not our approach is not to turn a video camera on either um our approach is that this is a tool that people and their clinicians can use to be more present with each other. And it's possible that those those main characters in healthcare, patients and their providers, they might decide to pause. You know, they might decide to say like, hey, this is a bit that we sort of want off the bridge record and I just want to confide in you. Or maybe I want to have some chit chat off the record, talk about politics, whatever the case might be. The technology already it, and and one of the reasons that what we call the company at bridge is that it takes it can kind of go through a conversation that includes all of that chit chat and it will pull the signal out wherever it was buried so a 30 minute conversation that was mostly about family and restaurants we ate at and and the weather um might only have 5 minutes of signal but a bridge pulls it out so once we've abridged the conversation that's when we subsequently classify all the different types of topics that we talked about to map to the medical record and then of course structure and summarize that information so that we can take off the table a lot of the clerical work so we're already we've already tuned the machine to be able to do the thing that should i think disarm people from worrying about the technology capturing more than they would intend um, that said, people have agency. People have the ability to pause if they see fit. But, you know, the framing here is that this is a note taker. This is just a tool um, and it's not replacing your clinician. And it by itself is not the final medical record because there is that clinician in the loop, you know, and or patient in the loop who are going to see the note and they're going to decide, like, does this look good? You know, did I change my mind? And they can add to it. They can they can use that note, at least as a draft that that they can add on. They can addend, they can augment before they finalize. What's the process for getting the patient's consent? And then if you could walk us through just uh, just the workflow, is this live on an app on the patient's device, the doctor's device? Is it integrated with Epic? Just what happens when I walk into the uh, exam room? Yeah, absolutely. So in terms of the workflow, we have a very sort of flexible technology stack. In fact, over a year ago, we put an API out and we encouraged any company out there. And it was it was interesting to see even like the tech companies out there that were claiming to have a quote unquote AI scribe were asking to use it because they had sort of humans in the loop that they were hoping that they could take out or make more efficient, which was a, a fascinating phenomenon for us to grapple with on whether or not that could be that was that was that was useful um, or not. The technology can be an API, it can integrate with any sort of platform where technologies, you know, where, where conversations are flowing. So telemedicine, call centers, et cetera. But you can also use it on an app. So that's how I use it when I'm in person with patients who I see in, in like a clinic or who might, I might see in like an ICU in a hospital. I just have it on my phone. And then what I do, even if there is that enterprise grade consent where patients have consented to this note taking technology being a part of some of their conversations, I still always tell my patient, hey, I'm going to use this note-taking solution. I hope that's okay. It's going to write a note from the conversation we have. Uh, I might even say it's going to help me be more present or really listen. Everybody says yes to that. I have never heard seen of a patient who says, no, that doesn't sound good to me. 
So I think it's a lot in the framing of how the clinician actually conveys the technology. I'm sure if I were to say it's recording our conversation and it's going to put that audio somewhere and it could leak, et cetera, or do X, Y, Z, um, it might feel a lot different. But I think at that point, it would feel different for both sides. You know, I, I, I think clinicians are in some ways the original, like we are the OG care advocates, like patient advocates, even before there were other types of advocates in the system. That's really what our role was, which was like to do best by our patient, no matter what it takes. And so um, the idealist in me is, is, is also believes that clinicians wouldn't use this if it was doing wrong by their patients in some way, shape or form. But anyways, once I've also told my patient about it, um, I then start to use it. I just hit the record button. When I hit stop, that medical record is going to have the data already in it. And so the idea is with the best integrations that we've done so far, you turn around, you could swivel your chair and the data is already there. Not every sort of medical record, though, can deal with that kind of integration. So sometimes there's a little bit more friction in the workflow where I have to like push it into the medical record or it only shows up in some fields and not all the fields. But that's a tractable challenge. It's just something that we'll have to chip away at over time. So AI can uh, generate false positives. So an answer that it thinks is right and is actually wrong. And in this case, potentially a false positive, let's say, you know, there's small talk about the New York Giants and it, you know, the AI misunderstands it and it becomes something about a giant melanoma, <laughs> you know, a meaningfully different uh, direction the conversation could take. Um, I know that's an extreme example and it would never happen with a bridge. But who is responsible if AI does make mistakes that end up uh, seeping into the transcript that goes home with the patient yeah well i mean first just to sort of talk about a bridge and the way we use um machine learning and, and the way we've trained our models so when we started the company we started with the largest data set in the space period full stop we had we we're coming out with um out of the gates with deep relationships with large healthcare systems like upmc and we had not just their support, but other strategic support to actually annotate that data, which took about two and a half, three years. And so that allowed us to create annotations that, frankly, like large language models have never seen. That's a really proprietary data set that's not on the Internet uh, to be able to scrape. And that's the data set that we've leveraged in different ways over time to publish the papers we've put out, but to build the technology that we've put into the product. So that that in and of itself, I think, puts us in a different category in terms of the way we've been able to wrap our heads around issues like hallucinations that I think you're getting at as well, that you can see with these, these sorts of foundation models. Now, I think the technology that we've built beside, you know, below and above those sorts of foundation models is, is a, he, a key differentiator in being able to mitigate a lot of the risks that you've talked about. But I also think that that risk is actually relatively low for our use case off the bat. And one of the reasons is because we're leveraging the technologies that have that risk in a very, very purpose uh, driven way, almost like a last mile. And that last mile comes oftentimes after other work that we've done around classification and information extraction and our own summarization. So there's almost like double, triple checks against any summary that we generate. That this was indeed part of the conversation. Now, 
There is, though, still always going to be issues with AI. Like people always bring up accents. You know, what if I actually misspoke and did say something I didn't mean, but the technology heard it? And so is that going to end up in the note? And that's why there does need to be the end user, you know, in the loop here. And we're going to always want to remind the end user like, hey, before you hit submit and make this a part of the final medical record, we want to make sure that you know, like you are the last mile here. You are such an important part of this process. And at the end of the day, this this technology was not looking to get you out of the loop of this entirely. It was simply to give you incredible efficiencies. Shiv, I'm going to go out on a limb and say there's a pre-November 2022 version of a bridge and a post. November 2022 being the fateful month when uh, Chet GPT was launched on an unsuspecting public. So I imagine in one respect, it made it easier to launch products like a bridge that are built on some phenomenally complicated technology. It just, it democratized access to these LLMs. But also it increased the public's fascination with the capabilities of AI. So imagine patients and doctors are more receptive to it. Just as a CEO and entrepreneur, talk us through how, how you've thought about, uh, you know, building a business based on these technologies that are now so high profile. I know it's, it's an incredible tailwind. And, and prior to starting the podcast, we were, we were discussing another conversation in an interview I'd had, I think about a year ago on stage where I did a live demo of our technology. And what's fascinating is that even a year ago, we were demonstrating essentially the same value proposition and and while that technology and the end solution is improving on a weekly basis it feels like since then um at the same time i think the biggest tailwind that chatgpt dropped uh like on us was awareness and education because now every time we speak to a potential client they're prepared mind on this technology um, one client, you know, a, a, a C-suite medical executive told us that he had read our papers, he had discerned that all of our research was about transformers in healthcare, and that the T in GBT stands for transformers. Like, people are connecting dots that blows my mind, because where we were this time last year was educating people, because nobody believed what we could do. They were asking us to put our hands up um, in Zoom demos, because they were convinced there was a human in the loop somewhere writing a note, um, even though this was essentially happening real time in front of their eyes. So now they believe it. Now there is credibility around, yeah, this is magic, and we can distribute this, we can democratize this value. And so I'd say that tailwind in and of itself has been absolutely game changing. I could never have predicted how mainstream this idea could get about the power of AI, especially in a vertical like this, like healthcare. Hey, Shiv, we're just scratching the surface of the topics that I'd hoped that we would cover, but we're unfortunately about out of time. But I'm not letting you off the hot seat without answering one last question for me. And that's a, you're a young guy, you've done so much, you know, as a, a cardiologist, treating patients, you know, you've been a teacher, an entrepreneur, an investor. Tell me what your entrepreneurial experience has taught you about yourself and who is Shiv at your core? What, uh, why were you put on this planet? Yeah, I, that's a great question. <laughs> you know, I, when I was, younger, like a lifetime ago in college, I think the most formative experience for me was going to see an architecture professor talk about this new idea 
that was starting to take over the world at the time called design thinking. And it was new for me. And the, maybe the D school at Stanford was relatively young as well. And he started talking about how we're all designers of our world. And he started giving examples. And he gave this example of an ophthalmologist in India who had designed this revolving platform that he sits on. And he brings patients in at 12, 3, 6, and 9. He does a cataract at 12, says spin, does a cataract at 3, spin, 6, spin, 9, spin. These procedures take five minutes sometimes. He's spinning all day long doing pr procedures for people they were bringing in on lorries and huge trucks in from the villages. And it was pay as you can, so essentially free. And at the time, he had given eyesight to over a million people, taught the procedure to his daughter, who had given eyesight to over 400,000 people. And I remember leaving the lecture thinking, I just want to be a part of a team that can create impact at that kind of scale. Fast forward years later, and you think about technology and the Apple iPhone coming out, and you start to see like that's what scale, like this is what tech can do, is it can create incredible value at scale. But doing that in healthcare is is the ambition here and being a part of a team that can actually change healthcare delivery for every one of us um, is what a bridge is all about. So for our thesis and the reason why I'm ride or die, obviously, with this company and everything that we can do here is that if you believe in the thesis that healthcare is about people and it's about the conversations that we have, then our ability to create that ophthalmologist type of scale, but at a thousand X that, if not a lot more, um, it's there. It's there for the taking and it's, it's starting to come together for us. And so that's what drives me. I think that's what my purpose is. Brilliant. Shib, we're all rooting for you to succeed. I, I love the vision. I'm watching you on camera here. The audience is only going to hear this on, on audio, but I just see, you know, you light up when you talk about the mission and the vision. And thanks for hanging out today. This has been, been a re really enjoyable conversation. Thank you so much, Dan. Big fan as well. And really appreciate it. Hope we can keep in touch. Absolutely. Before I let you go, uh, where can the audience learn more about you and the work of Abridge? Yeah, please find us at abridge.com. If you go on Twitter, you could find me pretty, pretty easily too at, at shivdevrao, um, MD, but um, really excited to connect with anyone who might be interested in the space. Excellent. Well, gosh, uh, that one flew by. I'm not sure we covered any of the topics that we had prepared to cover, but it was good. <laughs> a good discussion. And Chiv, I hope you'll uh, come back sometime. Thank you so much, Dan. Really appreciate it. Well, that's uh, that's all the time we have for this week on AI and the future of work. As always, I'm your host, Dan Turchin from PeopleRain. And of course, we're back next week with another fascinating guest. <laughs>